Welcome friends and colleagues. Today will be the last conversation we have on the topic of Hebrew Bible to the world. <coughs> what it tells, not what it says. The reason for it is that under the rubric of to the world, I really wanted to speak about creation and the human condition. And we have done so. <clears throat> if we go further, we're going to get involved more in the issues of family, nation, society, political science. And that is not what I initially planned to do. Secondly, uh, I have a book accepted by Oxford University Press and need to focus on completing it together with my co-authors. Thirdly, I gained a great deal from speaking to you over the past uh, six to eight months uh, in terms of being able to pull my knowledge, systematize it, and understand things deeper. I hope you've done that as well. It is time for me to move on to new frontiers. Perhaps at one point I will come back to this. Perhaps there may be a book coming out of our talks. But for now, let's stop and work independently on deepening and broadening our knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. I want to cover two topics. One, which I mentioned repeatedly, so I don't want to let it go without exploring it. The whole idea of Hebrew thought and Hebrew logic being different than the Greek thought and Greek language. Uh, Greek, Greek logic, that is. Uh, in other words, uh, Greeks developed the concept of syllogism, the if A is like B and B is like C, and under certain conditions that you can say that A is like C, it admits of only looking at uh, one parameter, uh, and the parameter has to be determinative. Uh, and Hebrew logic can take one common factor and on its basis establish an identity between two concepts or two items. Okay, uh, part of this whole area is investigation of biblical language, the use of verbs in Hebrew language, which is verbs are very weak. There is not in Hebrew a word is. For example, you would say table bright. You wouldn't say table is bright. So it's not Conceptions of identity is a conception of description. Hebrew verbs are weak. Uh, the future can be used for the past and the past for the future. And the present is, can be used for either one of them. Uh, a contributor to this genre recently is James Kugel, who talks about, who published a book where 
he contemplates that the the Hebrew perception of emotion is different. There's a lot of literature in this. One of the <coughs> major contributors is a book by Tor Leaf, T-H-O-R-L-E-I-F, Boma, B-O-M-A, called Hebrew Thought Compared with Greek. And there are other authors as well. There was a lot of investigation of this before World War II. After World War II, it became not really politically correct to talk about different thinking uh, between Greeks and Jews. And uh, the whole field gradually fell into disrepair. (coughs) I... uh, would like to leave my own stamp on this topic. And to do that, I will go back to Eric Auerbach and Mimesis and his analysis of the difference between the Homer, Odyssey, let's say, and the Bible. And what struck him and what his insight is that biblical writing is very sparse. It focuses on action. And he went, and he sat, and he raised, etc., etc. Whereas Homerian declamation is very lusciously descriptive. And the wooden oars have struck golden waters, raising foamy waves, etc., etc. So we can say that. Greeks thought visually, and Hebrews thought auditorially. What do I mean by that? When you see something, you see everything, but you don't understand anything. Okay, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when you look at a picture or a scene, everything is absorbed at the same time. The relationship between different items in the scene is not that clear and it takes further consideration for you to understand it. Much of the time you don't. You think you do, but you don't. That is very different from the way speech works. As one word comes after another and the grammatical and syntactic connections between words uh, appear and flow, your mind is connecting and interpreting them and uh, uh, reconciling uh, discrepancies and coming out, hopefully by the end of a sentence or a group of sentences, with a well-considered, well-balanced appreciation of what has been said. So this is auditory. It's not all in the same time, but it's piece by piece, and it's integrated at every step with the rest of the picture. So... We might say that the Greek way of perceiving the world is visual and the Hebrew way is auditory. It's not for nothing that God's contact with men in the Hebrew Bible is through speech. He first appears to Adam and Eve 
by speaking to them, Where art thou? And to all his prophets he appears not visually, but by speech, by 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 uh, God, and and God said this. Now that's not to say that there are not visions. Moses burning bushes, probably a good exception, or uh, the elders seeing God after the after Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, and eating and drinking. But there's some more exceptions than rules. It's only towards the end of the Bible in Zechariah and the very later prophets that you begin to have a vision as the center of prophetic experience. And that may have something to do with the ascendancy of Greek way of seeing the world. We had to switch in terms of prophecy because that was no longer the way people perceive things through hearing, but also more so through vision. Uh, visual perception, on the other hand, is the way that uh, we say seeing is believing, or we say that uh, a picture is better than a story, etc. But that's not the way the Bible began speaking. There are other authors as well. Um, if anyone wants to get deeper into it, he or she can. But I would just point out that in Jewish thought you have similar ideas. And that is uh, in the Hishtalshilus uh, Halomus, in the coming down of the spiritual worlds to reach us. There's a difference between the Sephira of Bina and the Sephira of Chochmah. Uh, Rav Zevin writes in one of his books, unfortunately I don't remember which one, it may be Hamoadim Bahalocha at the very end, but currently I don't have it uh, with me. But it doesn't matter because it basically comes from Hemshek Resh Samachvov of the Rebbe Rashab where he discusses this uh, difference between understanding and grasping something and understanding, or, or Chochmah, which is higher than Bina, wisdom being, being uh, higher than understanding. So Chochmah is the point at which you grasp the kernel of an idea. To expand it, you have to use Bina. When it's all expanded and integrated and reconciled, you have das, knowledge. Uh, so uh, that's uh, very similar to what we're saying about the difference between vision and hearing. And in fact, Rabbi Zevin, as well as in Hemshagrash he proceeds to discuss the difference in perception between these two methods. So we might say that the biblical way of seeing things is not seeing, it's hearing. And the Greek way of seeing things is truly seeing. When you see it, you perceive it all at once. You don't really understand or get it right away. Whereas when you hear it, you gradually build up a complete, comprehensive perception of what you're being told. So this is obviously very important in terms of how we approach the biblical story or the biblical perception. Now to finish off our 
podcast series, I want to speak about another topic to kind of pull things together. <clears throat> there is a book called The Hebrew Bible, New Insights and Scholarship, Jewish Studies in the 21st Century, published on December 1st, 2007. It consists of a group of essays, but one of them is by E. Greenspan, which I think would be very useful and perhaps my parting gift to those of you who are serious, interested and enraptured with the Hebrew Bible. He compares and contrasts three modern ways of interpreting the Bible. I'm not talking about uh, classic Jewish scholarship and commentators and all that. That's one of them, and I'll explain that in a second. But the way the moderns look at the Bible basically falls into one of three groups. The first one is the historical critical approach, of which biblical criticism is one part. In this approach, each book of the Bible, and sometimes even each chapter or sentence, are presenting different points of view that come out of different religious groups with disparate theologies and perspectives. Somehow, at some time, someone cobbled all these perspectives and documents together. So why uh, weren't the discrepancies obvious? Well, the redactor, the person who cobbled it all together, the, this mythical person who did so, uh, why didn't he eliminate the contradictions? Proponents of this view would say because the culture of the times did not see anything wrong in contradictions, since the goal was to preserve a record of different communities and views. I think that's quite weak, and I hope you recognize that as very weak as well. The other approaches are much more uh, consistent. But this approach has explanatory power, again, because of the way that we think nowadays. The reduction is scientific approach, meaning you break everything into smaller and so smaller components and see how they fit together, and that's how you truly understand, is now victorious over what's been termed the vitalistic approach, when you say, see everything, holistic approach, where you see everything as a whole, and you say that parts do not equal the whole. There is some property to the whole collection of parts and the interactions that does not exist in the parts themselves. That's not how we any longer think. So it's palatable, it's appealing, and it helps us, it helps the modern man avoid the very hard work of reconciling contradictions. But if you don't reconcile contradictions, you don't get deep. And that's what I am afraid has happened to us. The Bible has been the greatest book ever, had a tremendous and the greatest effect on society, psychology, and human beings. And this aspect of it is not going to be captured by the reductionist approach. There's definitely something more to it as a whole than there is to individual verses, or individual chapters, individual books, or some attempt to fragment it 
into different and unintegrated views. On the other hand, there is the traditional approach. The traditional interpretations are focused primarily on the sacredness of scripture, not only on its text. Certain kinds of interpretations, the ones that are not consistent with the message the particular religious community subscribes to, cannot possibly be true because it's not the Bible as we know it. Because there are these different views of reading the Bible, you cannot prove that one way is better than another. <clears throat> Secondarily, people who read this way are not looking for a dispassionate scientific understanding. They look for meaning. And the meaning is provided by the overarching synthesis of what their religious group says this is. The third approach is the one we've used here, which is the literary approach, and it is compatible with the either method. On one hand, the literal, the people who read it as literature, that doesn't mean it's not divine, but they use literary approaches, are not interested in the source of the text and how text came together. So they're not historians, they're not reductionists, they're studying the text. On the other hand, they're not interested only in the message of the text, what we would call Hashkofa in Hebrew, but in what it says. They shortchange everyone equally. To understand Bible as a literature, they approach the Bible as a text, trying to understand what techniques are being employed, what effect on the reader may be, and how it is accomplished. There are many types of literary approaches, and while they can result in unexpectedly enlightening insights, even some that have unintentional meaning to traditionalists, they're ultimately sterile because they're not interested in the truth, but only in literature. They miss the big picture of biblical religious meaning. Ultimately, the reason people are interested in the Bible is not because it's an interesting text. It's not like Don Quixote. It's a book that provides meaning. So the literary approach is closer to the traditional approach, because it does not conflict with it, but neither does it provide meaning. That's why in this series I try to take an approach that fuses meaning with the philosophy, with what the philosophical approach of the Bible is, with what it tells us, not what it says. So if I can leave a take-home message about what I consider good, I would say do not draw after them, as it says Psalms 37. The sources of religious meaning are personal experience and longing for greater experience. It is also tradition and it is text. If literary methods add to your sophistications and interpreting can uncover meaning, fine. But it is meaning and primarily meaning after which you must draw because that is what you want, and that is for what your soul thirsts. Thank you very much for traveling with me along this winding and beautiful road, and may you have only blessings. <laughs>